Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And just like that, it is February, Simone. And it's Groundhog's Day. It is. It is. I I know a couple people with birthdays today, and it's almost one of the easiest birthdays to remember for some strange reason because of that groundhog. I did not, though, Jacques, see what um, Boudreaux the Nutria has decided for our own um, prediction here in Louisiana. I have not seen that either. So if anyone has the latest on Boudreaux, uh, please let us know what he's saying. But Simone, since you brought up birthdays, I I can't let it slide that someone else had a birthday since our last show. You, in fact, had your birthday. I I tried not to get on that show so that we wouldn't talk about it. (laughs) You thought, yeah, you thought you would get out of it. But no, we are not letting Simone's birthday pass without wishing her a very, very happy birthday. I know it's it's been a week or so by this point, but I hope you had a great day um, with the kids. And, you know, celebrating is a little different these times, but still just Well, you know, we all appreciate you and and wish you a very happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I had a great day. Um, You know, I love to eat fried chicken on my birthday. It's my thing. And um, because of the time of year, it's always king cake season. So my birthdays have always had um, king cakes as birthday cakes. And I just can't imagine being another time of year where you had to have just a regular old cake. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, the best of both worlds. You can get, you know, king cake, birthday cake, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There you go. Yeah. So it's it's fun. And I don't know if you've had a chance uh, to check out some of the house floats that are uh, throughout yeah. the city and region. Our- but it's so cool to see how people are really just, you know, interpreting Mardi Gras this year in their own way. I love it. I think it's so ingenious. The work is just beautiful, right? Even even the homemade crafts, it's really unbelievable how talented this city is. And um, I was on a webinar with um, our friend Meg from City Park. She did a great community webinar for us. Um, and I wanted to jump in and tell her that I have float in the Oaks tickets for Thursday. So we're definitely looking forward to that. Um, Iris Bacchus and all of our favorites are going to have floats in there too. I love that City Park has just rolled with the punches too. I think that's so ingenious of them. So I I can't wait to participate and may want to do it more than once. How about you? Yeah, Simone, I mean, you know how I feel about City Park. Any excuse I have to be there, I will be there. And we love Celebration in the Oaks this year. And, you know, you actually told me about Floats in the Oaks and we're kind of like, you need to get your tickets because they're kind of going fast. So I was a little nervous, but we managed to snag some tickets for next week. And then, Simone, you know me so well, but there's also a bike option for Floats in the Oaks. So I might have to do it once by car and then twice by bike. So I think so, too. I have a question, though. Um, does Winnie have a little seat? Does Miss Winifred have a seat on the bike? How does Winnie um, get to enjoy Float in the Oaks? I guess she'll have to take the car ride. Winnie will come with us for the car ride. She came for Celebration in the Oaks. You know, we rolled her windows down. Um, she got to <laughs> she was on the naughty list. <laughs> well, Winnie, Winnie was on the on the nice list. <laughs> Graham and I were on the naughty list. But yes, um, City Park. If anyone loves City Park more than me, it's it's Winifred. So um, so yes, we're all very excited. Okay, but so one final question: You have not 
run into the zombie raccoons, have you? We've had an encounter with a, a raccoon or two in the daytime that looked a little out of it. This is before the reports of the zombie raccoons. So we kind of just like quickly went away because Winnie has a thing for, you know, going after small animals. So we then saw the notice of the, the zombie raccoon. So we're definitely being a little cautious. We always keep her on a leash no matter where we go. But um, but especially cautious now that there are these zombie raccoons in, in our beloved park. So our guests, Amy and Jared, must think they're in the twilight zone <laughs> with the conversation, the very New Orleans conversation that we just had about floats that are houses, about riding through the park to look at Mardi Gras floats and zombie raccoons. Um, so we'll have some, we have some explaining to do. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's been a while, so we had to catch up on all the good stuff that's happening. Um but to get to the matter at hand, you know, we've alluded to this in prior shows, but it is a very busy year that we have coming up. The work on the coast does not stop. Um, and joining us today to help us talk through a kind of regulatory process, a very important milestone for one of the key cornerstone restoration projects in, in Louisiana's coast, are Amy Reed and Jared Page from the Environment, Environmental Law Institute. We're going to talk to Amy first, who is a staff attorney at Environmental Law Institute. And we've had Amy on the show in the past and she's been so incredibly helpful and in, in kind of demystifying some of these um, regulatory and legal processes and understanding some of the environmental law that um, you know is kind of the basis and foundation for a lot of the work that's happening in Louisiana. So with that, let's get right into it. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Amy. Thank you, it's great to be back. So Amy, did you follow that conversation or did, <laughs> do we need to explain more? <laughs> Um, I definitely want to know more about zombie raccoons. Um, so, um, uh, we, you know, we have a fantastic, magnificent park here in Louisiana, and some of the raccoons have been, uh, get me right, Jacques, infected um, in some kind of way. And so they they actually like kind of sleepwalk and act like zombies. And um, as it's most of the you know jokes going about last year and this year is like who had um zombie raccoons on their bingo card um just just to add to the bizarreness so um we'll have to send you some information about that but hopefully there's been no zombie raccoons um for you how are you doing and and how's the li doing over these past crazy months yeah thanks i think like all of us um i've appreciated turning the page on the year and looking ahead to new opportunities um at eli we're working from home and uh, we haven't been able to travel down to Louisiana in person for a while, though right now that sounds okay with me staying away from that park. Um, but we're very lucky that most of our work can continue remotely. Um, and we are looking forward to finding ways to work with the new administration and the new Congress to advance environmental policy goals across our whole range of project areas. So, Amy, we talked about this, I believe, last year around the Mid-Breton scoping, um, which, you know, was during the whole, and as we still are, kind of in the midst of the pandemic and the need to have virtual engagement. So can you tell us a little bit, I mean, it's been some time since then, we're almost at a year, which is kind of scary to think about, but things have changed and people are evolving. Um, but how has public engagement on projects changed over the last 12 months? Yes. Um, so the landscape, I think, has evolved a lot uh, since the pandemic started. Um, a year ago, you know, as the virus was first spreading and jurisdictions were locking down and restricting public gatherings, we saw that most public meetings were postponed or just outright canceled. Uh, but as the year went on and on and on, um, it became clear that agencies needed to find a way to advance their work. And a lot of times that work 
um, came with the obligation to foster meaningful public participation, um, even in the virtual world. So proceeding with the public meetings held over Zoom or as webinars um, can make it easier, I think, for some of the audience to hop on the meeting from their living room where they might not have been able to travel to an in-person meeting uh, before. Uh, but it also raises issues of accessibility, especially in environmental justice communities. So I think agencies are really grappling with ways to include as many stakeholders as possible and fulfill their obligation to hear the public's comments and concerns. I guess one silver lining is that everyone or all the agencies kind of found themselves in the same boat at the same time. So as they were all testing out different approaches all around the country, um, you know, every time they had to hold a public meeting, it was sort of like another experiment in the laboratory of virtual engagement um, and some lessons learned have emerged. And I think that now we see agencies using approaches that seem to really support meaningful participation. Yeah, I've seen some really interesting, um, well, I've heard some really interesting discussions even about um, translation, that there's a way that, you know, somebody could be speaking just like we are here today. But um, if you were not an English speaker, you could just dial into another line and that person could um, be right there. And, and that that's seems pretty simple, but that's kind of new. So it has been interesting to see how quickly they've evolved um, about public engagement and see how else we can help them continue to move the ball forward, especially in terms of accessibility. So, so Amy, you've been on the show before. We've talked about different big milestones here in Louisiana. So tell us what project brings you to the show today. Well, today I'm here because a proposed project known as the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion has reached a key point in the environmental review process. So after several years of studying the project's anticipated impacts, the Army Corps of Engineers is planning to release a document that's called the Draft Environmental Impact Statement, which I will be abbreviating to Draft EIS or DEIS um, in early March. So Amy, tell us a little bit about this milestone and how it compares to others we've highlighted in the past. So what is an environmental impact statement and how does it relate to scoping, which I know we had you on um, last time when one of the projects was going through a scoping period? Yeah, uh, well, you're right that there are several important stops to make on the long road of a NEPA review. Uh, NEPA is short for the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a law that requires federal agencies to examine the environmental impacts of their proposed activities. Um, and in this case, since the Army Corps of Engineer has to make a major decision on whether to issue permits and permissions to CPRA to proceed with this sediment diversion project, uh, they were required to prepare a full environmental impact statement. Um, before they even started on that study, there was an important point where they were required to ask the public for input on which impacts and alternatives should be included in the scope of the draft EIS, which is why it's called scope. So they held meetings and accepted comments and eventually issued what's called a scoping report that described the feedback they'd received that would be helping to guide their analysis. So Amy, it just seems like this takes a really long time. I think those scoping meetings were back in, in 2017, but with a project of this scale, that, that's not unheard of, right? Like um, that the process takes this long. And in fact, to some degree, I think I want it to take longer because I want them to look at everything. Right, I agree. Uh, and it is completely normal for a project of this size and complexity to require several years of study. Whenever a permitting decision triggers a full environmental impact statement under NEPA, um, as opposed to one of the faster compliance pathways, just means by definition that there are lots of important questions to be studied and issues to be considered before that decision can be made. Um, and I think a few years ago, one government analysis showed that the average time for completion for a full EIS was over four years, and that quarter of the time it took more than six years. 
So even though it feels like we've all been waiting for this Medveritaria draft EIS for such a long time, uh, really hasn't taken all that long relative to some other projects. Yeah, and it's just interesting because we all, on our, as advocates for coastal restoration, you know, we want projects to move forward with urgency. We realize there's this underlying crisis that needs to be addressed. But at the same time, you know, you, like you were saying, with a project of this scale and scope, um, it's important that that process be comprehensive, right? And that, um, you know, that the uh, regulations are followed. So tell us a little bit about what will be in the draft environmental impact statement. What can we expect to see in it? And then also importantly, what what won't be included in a draft environmental impact statement? Uh, so the draft EIS will explain the project's anticipated impacts on the environment. Um, keep in mind that environment is defined super broadly, and the impacts will include not only the ecological effects, but also economic, cultural, historic, social, health impacts. Um, impacts can be positive or negative, and, and they can be direct or indirect. So there's, there's a whole lot of things to talk about. Uh, the draft EIS will also identify ways in which these anticipated impacts may be avoided or reduced, which are called mitigation measures. Um, and another important aspect aspect of the DEIS is that it won't just look at one way of accomplishing the project's goal, which is in this case, reestablishing the sediment deposition process between the river and the Barataria Basin. Uh, the NEPA law requires agencies to study impacts of multiple alternatives, including the option of doing nothing, which is called the no action alternative. And so often by the time an agency has done all this study and has produced the draft EIS, they have already identified what's called preferred alternative, but sometimes that doesn't even come until the final EIS. Um, but the bottom line is the release of the draft EIS does not mean that the permits and permissions for the project have been either approved or denied, just sets out on the record all the considerations that are going into that decision-making process uh, so it can be transparent for the public and give the public a chance to weigh in. So Amy, that's a really good point well made about impacts. Um, they're not always negative, that they could be positive. So uh, I think that was a really good thing to point out. So when we've asked people before to to talk to give their scoping comments, so when they did that, that comment, when they gave that question or comment during the scoping period, um, it's addressed in the EIS or it's part of the public record. So I, I'm really trying to get at how people really influence this kind of document. Right. Well, scoping was an opportunity for the public to help shape what gets included in the draft EIS. Um, so if you ask them to provide you with information about a given issue, then they are required by law to discuss that issue in the draft EIS, or at the least, they have to provide you with an explanation in writing on the record for why they decided that it wasn't relevant or they didn't need to study it. Um, and in the same vein, if your scoping comment asked about or suggested an alternative, uh, the draft is required to I think they call it analyze a reasonable range of alternatives uh, based on the purpose and need of the project. So again, if they decided not to do a detailed study of an alternative that you suggested, they'll need to explain why not. So Amy, let's set the stage a little bit. The draft environmental impact statement will come out and then what happens? Is there a public comment period or you know, what happens uh, in terms of uh, public engagement after the release of the environmental impact statement? So after the Corps releases the draft EIS, the document will be made available for public review and comment for at least 45 days. So in this case, we have a reason to expect that the comment period will be a little longer, more like 60 days, but uh, the law requires at least 45. And it'll be available online and hopefully in, at some locations in person as well. 
So the public can then submit written comments to the core, either online or by mail. Um, and often the, the agency, in this case, the core, will hold a public hearing about the draft EIS, and the public may also have an opportunity to provide verbal comments, you know, your three minutes at the microphone sort of situation. So then, then what, Amy, the, the public comment period closes, and do we expect it to take another two years before some more information comes out, or what's next after the public comment period? After the comment period ends, the core will review and analyze all the comments that it receives and decide what, if any, changes to make to the EIS, and then prepare a final version of the document. So I think it's hard to predict exactly how long that stage will take. It may depend on how many changes they decide they do or don't need to make based on the comments. Um, but once the final AIS does come out, that too will be available for public review for at least 30 days before the core issues what's called a record of decision. And that will announce its decision on the permit application and conclude the NEPA process. Um, and in that time between the release of the final AIS and the record of decision, that 30 day review period, the public can provide feedback about the final document, uh, but the core is not legally required to respond. So Amy, thank you so much. I mean, just in the last few minutes hearing you explain this so clearly has clarified so many questions for me about the process. Um, not to complicate things beyond the draft environmental impact statement, but we're also expecting another document to come out around that time. Um, so tell us about the restoration plan and what the purpose of that document is. Right, and you can't help but complicate it because it is complicated. But as I mentioned, the DIS is required by a law called NEPA, and this restoration plan is part of a different legal process called the Natural Resource Damage Assessment, which we shorthand to NERDA. Um, and this is one of the processes through which the oil spill settlement money flows to the state. And before Louisiana can spend it on a specific project, like the proposed diversion, uh, the trustees have to prepare what's called a draft restoration plan. And that document provides information about the proposed project and how it will meet their restoration goals that they've um, set out in some previous overarching plans. And similar to the DAS, the draft restoration plan will discuss alternative projects. Um, Restoration plans also trigger NEPA review, so the draft restoration plan will refer to and integrate the environmental impact analysis from the CORE's draft EIS document. Uh, but in general, we can expect the draft restoration plan to be less technical and more of a description of how this project would meet the trustees' restoration goals. And that document will also be open for public comment as well, correct? Correct. Uh, the trustees are required to provide an opportunity for public review and comment on the draft plan, and I think we can reasonably expect the comment periods to run concurrently and last the same amount of time um, as the draft EIS comment period, uh, since these processes have been so intertwined. Uh, but the length of the comment period, either way, will be announced when the draft plan is. So, Amy, y'all, I'm picturing in my head these beautiful graphics that usually y'all usually produce where it tells me where I am on those stops and what's next. And so um, tell folks where what's the best place for people to go to get ELIs. Um, y'all have done a ton of work on this project and others. So where's the plus, best place to go to get ELIs info? Yeah, we have a website at www.eli-ocean.org slash gulf where all of our materials for this project and others live. Uh, they are under a the publications tab, I think it's under our resources. And so again, that's www.eli-ocean.org slash golf. 
Uh, folks can also reach out to us with any questions or to request copies of our materials by email at gulfofmexico at And that timeline, right? I, I remember seeing that. That's something that you can see posted there too, right? For NEPA. Yep. Same place. Very good. So um, are you working on anything else fun <laughs> that's not related to, to something like this? Which, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Uh, there is, as I mentioned before, lots of exciting work with the new administration. But I think more than that for me, uh, my daughter is turning one next month. Um, and her life so far has been almost perfectly timed with the pandemic. Uh, so I'm looking forward to showing her a little more of the world. Oh, I love that. I love that. Jacques, you have a fun question? I do. I do. So I know, Simone, you and I have been very focused on king cakes, as we should be. Um, but yeah, but there are other desserts out there and sweet treats that it's time for. Um, I, I ordered, I had the pleasure of ordering some Girl Scout cookies from Miss mm-hmm. Penny, and um, I'm so excited for them to come in. So Amy, my question to you uh, is, what is your favorite type of Girl Scout cookie? Awesome question. Great question, Jack. So for years, it was tagalongs. I was totally devoted to tagalongs. Uh, but now I feel like I'm getting older because I've started to like those coconut ones more. Um, Samoas, I think they're called. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so good. They're caramel delights. Yes, Amy. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so I've done a little research, Jacques, to your point about Girl Scout cookies. And, um, you know, when we have to turn in our cookie order, it's very funny to see what people's favorites are. And far and away still, Thin Mints leads all categories. Um, but, Amy, um, Tagalongs, which are the chocolate peanut butter, are next. And um, so are Caramel Delights. But a new... A new um, Cookie has emerged in lemonade. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a new flavor, lemonade, that is, is sneaking up on that pack, too. So I feel like I have graphs and charts and Excel sheets. <laughs> so I feel like I'm doing some citizen science here. So, Jacques, you have to answer the question. What's your favorite cookie? I have been just steady Thin Mints my whole life. You know, I, I mean, I, I like the other ones, but, you know, there's something so refreshing about the Thin Mints. and In the freezer? Are you like a guy that puts it in the freezer? You know, I've had them in the freezer. I think they're nice. It's good when they're cold like that, but I, they don't have to. I just like the freshness of the the mint and the chocolate. So I'm very excited to be getting my order soon. Um, <laughs> not that we need any more sweets in this house, but it's all good. So, um, well, Amy, thank you so much. We're about to head into a break and then we'll bring on your college, Jer- colleague, Jared, to talk a little bit more about um, the EIS process and some content that ELI has put together. But first, it is time for our coastal stat of the week. This week's coastal stat is that the Barataria Basin has lost 300,000 acres of land since the 1930s. Without action, the future of the basin is grim, as it expected to lose between 105,000 to 150,000 acres of land by 2060. The mid-Barataria sediment diversion can build and maintain 30,000 acres of land in 50 years and will continue to mitigate land loss beyond then. The project will also work in tandem with other restoration projects, such as marsh creation and terracing, by providing needed sediment and fresh water to sustain those projects. This includes an additional uh, 8,500 acres of marsh that can be sustained over time thanks to the location of the diversion. So we'll be sure to bring you more content like that in the future. And if you want to learn more, you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org 
slash sediment diversions um, to learn more. And we'll be right back with Jared from Environmental Law Institute after the break. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Simone Malas with Restore or Retreat. Welcome back. We have on um, Amy's colleague to talk a little bit more about some um, about sediment diversions and about a blog that he wrote. So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Jared. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. So tell us about your work with Amy and with ELI. What do you do there? Yeah, absolutely. So I work with Amy on ELI's golf program, and my role on the team consists mostly of conducting research um, on a lot of legal topics related to restoration throughout the Gulf. Uh, This includes like assessing current projects, looking ahead to what's in store for the future. And so far, a lot of the work that I've done has related to the mid-Baritaria sediment diversion, Um, but I've also been tracking the latest scientific and legal developments all surrounding Gulf restoration. Um, and a lot of the times I try to communicate that research to the public through through various ELI blog posts or other material on our website. So we definitely want to get into the blog post because I thought it was a very helpful explainer on um, you know this project specifically. But first, I want to get a little bit more about your background. Tell us how you got into environmental law. Yeah, so I've had an appreciation for the outdoors and wild places since I was a kid. Um, And one of my favorite books has always been, you know, Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac, which is an iconic work that advocates for a land ethic and approach to working with the land that hinges on ecology and ecological principles. Um, But it wasn't really, it wasn't until I spent several years working actually at National Geographic Society here in in Washington, D.C., and, and reading books like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, that I really started to kind of ask myself, what more can I do to participate in the whole process? And how can I enact policies that will, that will respond to climate change and help protect the places I care about? And um, for me, the answer to that question was, was law school. That's so cool. And, and you know, that the history of working at National Geographic and kind of those readings, um, you know, and how that just has inspired your path. Uh, is certainly uh, of interest. And, you know, what advice would you give to aspiring environmental lawyers out there? Maybe they're in law school, maybe they're thinking of going to law school. Uh, If you could go back, as Simone likes to say, and and give some advice to little Jared, what what would you tell him? Yeah, I think, you know, two two big things, I think, come to mind. I mean, first, it's, it's connecting with others, you know, students, professors, policymakers, anybody who's out there doing work that looks interesting to you. You know, even if you don't know who these people are personally, just just reach out to them. Um, chances are that they'll be happy to hear from somebody who's interested, interested in their work. And I think the second thing is stay hopeful. You know, I think sometimes learning about the, the climate crisis can, can get you down, but it's important not to lose sight of the fact that the law remains a powerful tool for change. And, you know, so stick with it and, and know that you can make a difference. Um, oh, and, um, you know, check out the Environmental Laws website and their work. Um, truly, they were an invaluable resource to me um, as I made my way through, through law school. 
I think that's excellent advice. And so hopefully for our aspiring lawyers out there, um, you know, they can take you up on that. But I want to dig into a blog that you recently published on ELI's website. Um, it's called Sediment Diversions, Big Projects Confront Land Loss in the Mississippi River Delta. So tell us a little bit about this blog and what it covers. Sure. Well, first, credit to my colleague, Dominic Schicitano, for coming up with the idea for the blog. It, it was a good one. Um, and I think that the main thing that I learned are, you know, that these diversions are, are really interesting projects, you know, both from engineering, ecological, and legal perspectives. You know, projects like these are, you know, they're physically massive, and they impact a whole host of resources, you know, not just wetlands and wildlife, but, but of course, people too. Um, and especially those in surrounding communities who rely on healthy ecosystems to make a living. I mean, this is important stuff. Um, and, you know, your listeners might be shocked to hear, but I'd never heard of a sediment diversion before starting with ELI's golf team a few months ago. And, you know, now I'm, I'm starting to really dig into the nitty gritty. So it's fun. Well, I think, uh, you know, you certainly uh, wrote the blog with a lot of expertise in the laws that govern these projects and, and kind of similar projects. So let's dig into those. Um, Amy alluded to a few of these, but tell us first about NEPA and what that law entails. Sure. So, um, you know, a, as you mentioned, Amy already went over a couple of, of those things, but NEMA is pretty much a, a process-based law, um, but it does two really important things. Um, you know, first, it tells agencies to, to stop and think about the environmental consequences of their actions, right? Um, and they do this by preparing what's, what's called in the law a, quote, detailed statement. Um, that tries to accomplish several things, both evaluating the project's environmental impacts, considering those alternatives to the project, which, which Amy talked about in the scoping process, um, and, and identifying potential ways to mitigate those impacts too, right? So all of that's in, in the detailed statement. But the second thing that NEPA does is that it provides some transparency, Right. So since agencies have to disclose their findings related to all these environmental impacts, that means the public can better understand the scope of what's going to happen and what the potential impacts of that project might be. Um, and all the while, it allows the public a chance to, to comment and participate on the, the entire process. So, yeah, NEPA is really a foundational law for a project like this. Okay, and there's another one um, that's important and ties into this project, and that's the Clean Water Act. So tell us a little bit about that and how it ties in to the environmental impact statement. Sure. So um, the Clean Water Act comes up because this project requires a lot of dredging, right, um, in particular to make room for the diversion structure itself. Um, and whenever dredged material is placed into U.S. waters, um, or to, to use the language from the law, whenever dredge and filled material is discharged, into U.S. waters, you know, that activity requires a Clean Water Act permit. And this is the so-called Section 404 permit. Um, and so, of course, when, um, you know, determining whether or not to grant that permit, um, that's kind of when NEPA comes into play, um, trying to figure out what the potential impacts of, of the project might be. And there are other laws as well that are specific to governing wildlife. So Migratory Bird Treaty Act, Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act, Endangered Species Act. Um, so, And these also tie into the project and the permitting process as well, correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, all of these laws—it's um, a pretty—it's a pretty complicated and complex landscape out there. Um, each of the laws that you mentioned is kind of triggered by a different set of circumstances, um, and the agency that's charged with overseeing compliance with that law either has some sort of obligation, and whether that's um, engaging in a consultation about the impacts or whether that's issuing a permit, um, that really depends on the specific law. Um, for these laws that you mentioned, especially a lot of the wildlife ones, um, whether or not they apply depends often on what particular species are in a given area or um, what species might be impacted by, by the project in question. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, um, touching on the, the laws that you mentioned, you know, the Magnuson-Stevens uh, Fishery Conservation and Management Act, uh, or Magnuson-Stevens Law, it requires that the National Marine Fisheries Service, also known as NOAA Fisheries, requires them to conduct an assessment of how the diversion will impact essential fish habitat. And this essential habitat includes things like coral reefs, kelp forests, bays, wetlands, rivers, and even deep ocean um, that might be necessary for fish reproduction, growth, feeding, shelter, all those essential life um, parts of the life cycle. And then NOAA Fisheries will provide advice and recommendations um, on how to avoid, reduce, or, or possibly offset these, these adverse effects. Um, and, and similarly, but, but not um, exactly the same, um, the Marine Mammal Protection Act um, says that any action or even an attempted action that harasses, hunts, captures, or kills a marine mammal without a permit is illegal. Um, and because the mid-barataria sediment diversion might impact dolphins, um, a, a permit under the Marine Mammal Protection Act would normally be required. Um, in the case of this project, however, Congress waived that permit requirement in a 2018 appropriations bill. But even with that, even with that waiver, Louisiana will still cooperate with NOAA Fisheries to design mitigation measures that will, that will minimize marine mammal impacts. Um, and just to kind of polish it off here, as, for, as far as the Endangered Species Act, which for this project includes things like manatees, pallid sturgeon, and, and several species of turtle, there must be a consultation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for any land and freshwater species and NOAA fisheries for any marine species to ensure that the project won't jeopardize any species that are, that are listed as endangered or threatened. That's certainly, you know, a lot, right, that kind of intersects with this project. And I think it goes back to what we were discussing in our earlier segment with Amy about how comprehensive an environmental impact statement and putting that together um, must be, you know, in, in terms of the timing. And it, it, these projects do take years, right, in terms of permitting. But you can see why just in the overview of those laws, the degree of um, kind of modeling, monitoring, kind of cooperation among agencies that's required to move a project like this forward. So on that note, I mean, as the applicant, what does the state or the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority need to do to ensure they're meeting the requirements of these laws? Yeah, so that's actually an interesting question. So as the project sponsor, CPRA doesn't really play a big role in determining whether to issue these permits or in conducting a consultation on these issues. You know, those consultation and permit decisions are, are left to the federal agencies in charge of each law. 
Um, you know, that being said, however, there are other state agencies like the Office of State Lands, for example, in Louisiana, that will be responsible for ensuring the project complies with some state laws. Um, you know, in the case of the Office of State Lands, they will be responsible for issuing a, a water bottom permit for the project. And, you know, any listeners who are interested in more information can, can find details of each agency's roles and responsibilities um, in a document that kind of governs the entire project called the, the Coordinated Project Plan. So tell us, Jared, uh, I mean, this project is kind of in- extremely innovative in some ways. It's very large scale, kind of nothing like has ever been done in Louisiana, I would say, in, in many parts of the country. How does this project differ from others that you have worked on or studied in the past? Yeah, well, it's a great time to be working on this project um, because as we talked about, you know, it's current and so much is happening right now. You know, with the draft EIS set to come out soon, it's really fun to be involved in something that's happening in real time. Um, Having left law school not too long ago, it's it's refreshing to examine something as it's occurring instead of looking at how lawsuits, you know, from decades ago were decided and analyzing the legal reasoning behind them, which, you know, don't get me wrong, can also be great. But, but the immediacy of this project is really what's exciting. And I think it's, you know, one thing to note is it's an ecosystem restoration project. And so I would imagine a lot of times when these federal laws uh, are triggered, it's, you know, maybe more traditional large-scale infrastructure projects, a bridge, a levy, you know, some sort of uh, plant of some sort. But but this project aims to restore the ecosystem, but it's still governed by a number of these laws. So can you talk about that before and whether there's a similar precedent of other projects uh, like this one? Yeah, well, the answer is kind of yes and no. I mean, in short, yes, um, there's many examples of restoration projects that involve the laws that we've mentioned. Um, but these projects are typically on a much, much smaller scale. You know, think of restoration of a few dozen acres rather than, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres. So really what makes this project somewhat unique is, is the scope. Um, you know, there's a couple of other efforts that are on a large, large scale that do come to mind, things like the Chesapeake Bay Agreement or the Restoration Plan for the Everglades. Um, and what's interesting about those examples is, you know, they were so significant and complex that they practic- practically comprised their own unique field and body of law and giving, gave rise to new applications of existing law and new mechanisms of their own. You know, I'm thinking here of the Chesapeake Bay's total maximum daily load, or TMDL, which was an attempt to reduce the amount of pollution getting into the bay. And so we don't know yet exactly what this new body of law might look like for the mid-Barataria sediment diversion, but it definitely is um, somewhat unprecedented in terms of its uh, significant scope. Super helpful for that to have that context as we think about this. And another thing that you really emphasize in the blog, Jared, is um, how the public can get involved in the process and why it's important for for the public and people to provide comments on the documents that we discussed today. So can you tell us a little bit about that public engagement and and why it's crucial um, as part of this overall legal process? Yeah, staying engaged is is essential. I mean, positive change can't happen if people are silent, right? I mean, good outcomes can result when people come together and participate in the process. And when people engage with the process, when people provide comments on a draft EIS, for example, you know, as Amy mentioned, the government has to listen. You know, they have to consider those comments for before releasing a draft EIS. 
you know, so the draft EIS then becomes an essential place um, for for people's voices to be heard. I think that's a great call to action. And, and hopefully in the near future, we'll have some specific information about how the public can give comments on these documents and be involved um, as the public meetings are announced and the comment period details are finalized and announced. So we'll be sure to share those. But for now, Jared, where can people go to access your blog, to read it, um, and get other great information from the Environmental Law Institute? Yeah, so the blog is found um, on ELI's main website, eli.org, and it's called the Vibrant Environment Blog. Um, but you can also reach ELI on Facebook, um, on Twitter at, at ELIORG. Um, you can also check out ELI's People, Places, Planet podcast, um, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, all of those places are great resources to find all about um, ELI. So thanks for having me. It was, it was great to be here. Absolutely, Jared. Thank you so much for the really um, useful explainer and the blog and for coming on the show today um, to talk us through these things. They can sometimes be a little complex, but I think you and Amy really helped us demystify these processes. And we'll be sure to link to the blog and other ELI resources in our episode. So please check that out and share it um, as much as you can. Before we let you go, Jared, we do have to ask a fun question. And I guess we can you know, we gave, we gave you a little sneak peek on what the fun question would be. So hopefully you've had some time to think about it. But same question to you. Do you have a favorite Girl Scout cookie? You know, Jacques, I am fully um, in your boat. I am a Thin Mint guy um, through and through. Um, although I have to say uh, frozen for me is the way to go. So a frozen Thin Mint can't be beat in my book. I think that's a great answer. And, you know, maybe this time I will keep them in the freezer and I probably will notice a difference. So thank you so much, Jared. Really appreciate all the work you and your colleagues do at the Environmental Law Institute. And thank you and Amy so much for coming on and talking to us today. Um, It is now time for our Coastal Voice of the Week. So this week's Coastal Voice is from Richie in Buras, Louisiana. And he says, I support the coast because a robust coast is important to Louisiana's unique culture. Our coast lets people be free and independent by providing bountiful natural resources that feed and fuel the nation and protect our homes from storm surge. Our coast is the goose that laid the golden egg. I couldn't agree more. So reminder, you can go online at any point um, and submit your voice um, and we'll read it on a show, share it and let others know why you think the coast is so important and worth protecting. So just go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. And we'll be back on an upcoming episode of Delta Dispatches. For now, wishing you all champagne wishes and cookie dreams. We'll see you next time.